0: This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Michelle Peterson, who was the appellate attorney who worked on the case of Lamoureux, which has become one of the precedents that established that SB fourteen thirty seven. The Felony Murder Rule Reform is Constitutional. Welcome to the show, Michelle.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: So we've covered a lot on SB 1437 on this show. Uh, We've covered at least two cases of people who were released under 1437. We recently interviewed Jennifer Mouses, who's the attorney representing Davidson, which is the case before the third district court. And then two weeks ago, we interviewed Senator Nancy Skinner herself, who wrote the statute. But I think uh, we still need to start with, what is 1437? What does it do?
1: Senate Bill 1437 is the follow-up to uh, an earlier resolution, Senate concurrent resolution, 48 um, from the previous year, which contained what became SB 1437 and set forth the policy reasons for legislation of this nature. In short, what it does is it undoes the longstanding case law definition of the uh, uh, what we would call derivative liability for the crime of murder, people who neither killed nor had intent to kill, nor had, if you will, constructive intent to kill, people who were convicted of murder based solely on their participation in a lesser crime. Uh, And it undoes uh, that kind of derivative liability in order to make the punishment fit the crime. That if a person gets involved in a street fight uh, during which somebody then pulls out a knife and stabs another person and, and the person who got into the fight had uh, didn't anticipate that uh, there would be any death or anything like that, that uh, that person cannot be convicted of murder. And similar if a kid gets involved with a bunch of older kids in, in, a, uh, in a burglary and uh, somebody Pulls out a gun and shoots the victim. Uh, The kid who got involved not having any idea there was even a gun there cannot be convicted of murder. That is a dramatic change from the way case law had worked since time immemorial uh, in California.
0: Yeah. So, like, maybe the classic case is two people go in on a burglary. Uh, One sits out in the car, the other one goes into the place encounters somebody ends up killing them and under the old law uh, both people would go for murder um, and could could have life sentences under the new law if they're determined not to be a major participant or acted in reckless indifference to human life they would only be guilty of being part of the burglary
1: that's correct and you've actually set forth the holding of an important California Supreme Court opinion from 2015 called People versus Banks, which held that people in that situation, the getaway driver, if you will, uh, are uh, not major participants with reckless indifference to human life, and therefore that person cannot be convicted uh, under the major participant in reckless indifference prongs back then- it was the difference between first-degree murder with a sentence of 25 years to life, and a sentence of life without parole for a special circumstance, um, and uh, or possibly the death penalty. And now SB 1437 changed that to make that part of the definition of felony murder, such uh, that the getaway driver in that circumstance cannot even be convicted of murder in the first place. They can be convicted of the crime that they intended to participate in, which in your example would be a burglary, but they can't be convicted of more than that. And once again, the idea behind Senator Skinner's legislation was to make the punishment fit the crime. Crimes in California are defined by what people did and what people thought. and. In these derivative liability situations, frequently they were convicted, people would be convicted of what they did, but not based on what they thought. And the idea behind SB 1437 was to eliminate that disconnect.
0: And, you know, it's interesting because I've been covering court cases for a decade now, and... Up until 1437, I, I really didn't recognize just how grave an injustice this is. We, we've had cases where people have literally been in prison for decades and very minor participants in the crime, and in some cases probably wrongfully convicted in the first place. I mean, we're, we're, over, we're seeing the overturning of massive injustice here.
1: And I think you put your finger on something that I consider to be important, and that is the question of wrongful convictions. We read about innocence projects and uh, how they can occasionally free people from wrongful convictions because of some sort of extraordinary work funded by a law firm, perhaps. They get investigators involved. Uh, And and it's, it's wonderful to see those stories, but those stories are just a tiny, tiny fraction of the convictions that occur in California for major crimes. It is extremely difficult, if not virtually impossible, for an average person who is convicted of a crime to be able to muster the resources necessary to try and figure out a way to undo that conviction. Uh, after an, an unsuccessful appeal. And the appellate system is very limited in what it can or will do. And um, uh, the post appellate system is even more limited. And so there undoubtedly are a very large number of people who have been wrongfully convicted of uh, crimes that will never know. Uh, because the system is just not set up to uh, to deal with that. How many of them have been languishing in prison? We'll never know. But uh, at the very least, with the enactment of SB 1437, the idea that a person could languish in prison for uh, many years or even decades beyond the crime that they actually are known to have participated in, Uh, that's not going to happen anymore. And Ms. Lomero's case may well be an example of that. I wasn't involved in the first trial or the first appeal, so I don't know the case that well, but when I review the Court of Appeals opinion, the evidence that was used to convict her and then to affirm her conviction looks awfully thin to me. And uh, most of it is based on the fact that she got involved after the fact, which she clearly did but uh, was she knowledgeable before the fact of what the shooter intended to do we don't know we're never going to know um at least from the perspective of the appellate system these kinds of things aren't going to happen anymore if uh, sb 1437 uh, becomes uh, fully enacted in california as i believe it will
0: so um you just mentioned lamoreau which is where i was going to head with all of this um so what uh, what do you know about that case, and what can you tell us?
1: Ms. Lomero's case dates back to 2011. Ms. Lomero was uh, a school teacher and a housewife. Uh, she was in her mid-40s when all this happened, and uh, she would probably say she was having a midlife crisis, and uh, she got involved with uh, some people who had some rather unsavory connections, uh, she had uh, lived with one for a number of years, and uh, uh, named uh, uh, Inzerra, and he had a, a friend Kyle Miller, who ended up being the shooter. Uh, and so, the nature of the case was that Miller and possibly InCEra, although he was acquitted ultimately, uh, decided to rob uh, and burglarize. Miller's uncle, Bradley Kepin, who kept a store of cash and a large store of drugs on him. And uh, there's no question that uh, Miller committed the robbery. There's no question that Miller killed uh, his uncle, Keaton. There is a question as to whether instead was knowingly involved. Uh, he was found with $1,200, uh, some of which were bloodstained on him after the fact, and his son, his 11-year-old son, testified that he always needed money, uh, and there was some other circumstantial evidence that could have convicted him, but his first jury hung and his second jury acquitted him. Now, the, the nuance of that was that uh, Incera was tried separately from Miller and, uh, and Patty Lamoureux, because of some statements that were made that couldn't be admitted in uh, in Seta's trial, statements made by Miller, uh, whereas uh, Miller and Lamaro were tried together. And Patty says to this day, and I certainly believe this, that if she had not been tried with the with the obvious criminal, the the obvious killer, she would have been acquitted too, just as In was, because her involvement uh, was virtually non-existent. Uh, Basically, uh, she was involved in having brought a gun with Miller to the house of a third person who the evidence indicated may have wanted to buy the gun. And it's based on uh, the allegation that her involvement with that gun uh, meant that she uh, knew about the robbery in advance, that she was convicted. Uh, that, and there's no question about the fact that she was an accessory after the fact. She was involved in hiding the weapon after the fact uh, for, for uh, Miller and Inseta. Uh and uh, so the question was what she knew before the fact, and there's really very little to couple her with the robbery before the fact, other than the fact that she lived with uh, Inseda and Miller, uh, and uh, And theoretically, there could have been discussions going on. Whether she was a part of them, um, I think only the people involved will really know. Um, But uh, certainly the evidence against her was thin at best, and yet for an appellate affirmance, the evidence doesn't need to be any more than thin. Uh, It just needs to be, quote, enough, close quote. And that's what the Court of Appeals found back in 2015. Now, having said that, Her appeal in 2015 was successful in one way, which was that the Court of Appeal found that there was insufficient evidence uh, that she was a major participant with reckless indifference in the underlying uh, burglary and robbery. And that succeeded in 2015 in uh, reducing her sentence, which had been life without parole in prison, to 25 years to life in prison which I guess was a triumph of some sort, except that she was 46 when she was first incarcerated. So it meant that instead of being guaranteed to die in prison, she would have her first parole eligibility at age 71, um, uh, which is some sort of triumph, I guess. And God bless her family, her her mother and her stepfather, they stuck by her and they drove every weekend to her place of imprisonment in Chowchella. Uh, eight hours from her home, and her mom says, I never let on what I was feeling inside. I always smiled. I was always positive. But uh, her mom wasn't going to live to see her released until SB 1437 was enacted. And when SB 1437 was enacted, that reversal of the special circumstance in 15 now became her ticket to freedom, except for the fact that the law was held unconstitutional. Uh, which I'm sure we will get to.
0: Yes. Uh, So where was it originally filed as a 1437 case? Was it San Diego County or Riverside?
1: It was filed in Riverside. And the reason uh, that it ended up in the Court of Appeal in San Diego was because there are three appellate divisions in what's called the Fourth Appellate District, Uh, Division one is for San Diego and Imperial counties. Division two is for San Bernardino and Riverside counties. And division three is for Orange County. So they're all one court, uh, Court of Appeal, but they are divided up into kind of three subcourts, if you will. Um, So the case uh, against Patty was tried in Riverside County. I believe she may have been living in Murrieta at the time. And so when she was convicted, uh, and when Miller was convicted, uh, their case was appealed to Division II of the Fourth Appellate District, um, which is headquartered in Riverside, but for administrative reasons, which may have been, uh, let's say, a temporary overload in the Court of Appeal at that time, uh, it was transferred from the Court of Appeal in Riverside to the Court of Appeal in San Diego, um, where her first appeal was decided. And so... Uh, when the uh, when the SB 1437 was petition petition was filed in 2019, it was heard in Riverside, and the Riverside County Superior Court found it unconstitutional. But when that decision was appealed um, administratively, and there's a rule of court on this, it went back to the Court of Appeal that had heard her first appeal, which was Division One in San Diego.
0: I see. Okay, so um, she files it. Um, it's heard in Riverside County and did Riverside County then just, uh, declare it unconstitutional at this point?
1: That's correct. And And, so they denied her petition.
0: And then, uh, it gets appealed then to the fourth district. Right. And at that point, is that when you take over?
1: That's correct.
0: And so what happens, um, You know, this this happened fairly quickly. It uh, happened within, what, 10 months of uh, 1437 becoming uh, uh, law, right?
1: It did happen unusually quickly. And the reason for that was that uh, both her trial attorney, uh, Trent Packer out of Riverside, who did a magnificent job for Patty, Uh, And then I, uh, as her attorney, were aware of of several things. First of all, that she had a a very simple case, if you will. Uh, She had already had the reversal on the special circumstance for lack of evidence of major indifference and, uh, pardon me, major participant and reckless indifference. Uh, and under one of the provisions of SB 1437, that meant that she was automatically eligible for release, assuming the statute was constitutional. And so Trent worked hard to kind of get her case advanced to the head of the line uh, in terms of time, and he did. And so her petition was denied fairly quickly, and then after it was appealed, um, I Made a motion in the court of appeal to do the same thing. I, I made a motion for what's called calendar preference and expedited treatment, which basically said that um, she was eligible for immediate release because uh, if SB fourteen thirty seven is constitutional, she's already done all of the time that she could do on uh, on the uh, on the um, c- conviction for conspiracy to uh, commit burglary, which is what her conviction would have been in ultimately was reduced to. And so since she had already done her time, um, that, uh, it was important for the court of appeal to hear it quickly because now she was doing what's called dead time, which would mean that, uh, if the law was constitutional, she was doing, uh, prison time that the law did not permit. And so I asked for expedited treatment and the court of appeal granted my motion for expedited treatment. Uh, they, they granted my request, uh, for a, um, expedited briefing schedule, during which everybody had to file their briefs without extensions of time. Uh, Then the attorney general's office weighed in. That happened quickly. And then the case was calendared very quickly. And it was argued orally in San Diego um, in November and then decided a week after argument. It, It happened with almost amazing rapidity. The appellate system doesn't usually work that quickly.
0: No, I'm I'm well aware of it. Uh that that's why I brought that up. Uh so how does it end up getting joined to the Gooden case?
1: The Gooden case was a writ petition out of San Diego County and what was happening in San Diego County uh, was that some of these judges were hearing uh constitutionality only issues before getting to the merits and that's what happened in uh, Gooden and its companion case of Dominguez uh, was that there were two decisions on constitutionality-only issues that decided that the law was constitutional. And so the DA of San Diego County took a uh, what's called a writ petition, which is basically a discretionary appeal. The Court of Appeal would not have to hear it. Uh, but the Court, of Appe- uh, the Court of Appeal in San Diego knew the stakes involved, and so they, they agreed to hear the writ petition. And so that was happening on a second track from Lamarro, but, uh, but they were happening at somewhat the same times, once the Lamoureux uh, decision, uh, the case was expedited, and so the presiding justice of the Court of Appeal uh, as an administrative matter, undoubtedly knew that these things were going on at the same time. SB 1437 was getting a lot of press everywhere. Of course, uh, the justices in the courts of the all over California knew what was going on. And so I would assume that, that uh, uh, presiding Justice McConnell uh, made the administrative decision to put these two cases together uh, because they involved basically the same issue. Now, there was a little bit of a difference in the sense that the Gooden case uh, involved only one of the three questions that was raised in the lamarro case, one of the three constitutionality issues. And so that was another reason uh, that it made sense to decide them together because uh, the Lamoureux appeal involved what are basically the three primary issues that the district attorneys across California had been raising. And so that way, by deciding Lomero, you uh, the Court of Appeal could uh, dispose of all of the uh, arguments at once. And so the two arguments got tied together, and uh, Troy Britt from the San Diego Public Defender's Office handled the uh, Good and writ petition and was there arguing uh, that case with uh, the Deputy Attorney General and me in San Diego, and uh, uh, Troy did an excellent job, and uh, we uh, uh, we worked well together. Um, I should add that the Attorney General's office um, uh, has been filing a friend of the court briefs in uh, uh, all of these appeals across California on the constitutionality issue, and uh, and he's been appearing, uh, not the Attorney General, but one of his deputies, has been appearing in courts of appeal to argue the constitutionality of the legislation Uh, Javier Becerra, uh, the Attorney General of California, has gone on record publicly as supporting the legislature's authority to enact this law, and so the Attorney General's office was with us uh, in this case as well.
0: And I think that's a big deal because you have the Attorney General weighing in on the side of constitutionality. That's definitely going to help tip the scale in the direction of that, wouldn't you think?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, it, it was very important. The attorney general's office usually is not on our side, and and in and in cases that don't involve constitutionality, uh, they're not on our side. Uh, but this involved the authority of the legislature to enact the legislation, and uh, the attorney general certainly believed in the legislature's authority to enact the legislation. They have a great deal of institutional credibility with the courts of appeal. They are the most common litigant in the courts of appeal, and uh, yes, their their support was invaluable, absolutely, and uh, Nelson Richards, who's the deputy attorney general in the case, wrote uh, wrote an excellent brief and has been writing excellent briefs, and uh, his fine work has been invaluable as well, um, not to mention that he's a genuinely nice guy who I've really enjoyed working with.
0: So. What is your main argument for why it was constitutional?
1: We've adhered to the straight and narrow. We have adhered to the principle that you see over and over and over again in California Supreme Court opinions, Court of Appeal opinions, opinions in every court nationwide up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And that is that when you've got a statute or in California's case, ballot propositions that become statutes, you read the statutes and ballot propositions to say exactly what they say. No more, no less. Um, and that's all we did. Um, and I've been emphasizing it in every single one of my appellate briefs, uh, in, in uh, beginning with the Chavo case, uh, the first uh, appellate brief I filed in February of 2019. And then, of course, in Patty's case, um, that the statute says what it says, and it means what it says. Um, And certainly there have been uh, Supreme Court cases on point to the various arguments, uh, primarily the uh, Article II, Section 10C argument and the separation of powers argument, uh, that uh, we have felt support our positions. Uh, that the statutes mean what they say and, and no more. The Lamoureux Court supported us in every way. In our view, the Lamoureux and Gooden opinions are templates for how you analyze these questions. You analyze them by looking at what is in the ballot proposition and reading it to mean what it says, to look at the statute and mean what it says, to look at the legislation and conclude that it means what it says. And um, the Lamarro and Gooden opinions follow the, uh, the the methodology that we and the Attorney General and the San Diego Public Defender's Office used, which was to read the statutes and the propositions and the legislations for no more than they say. It's a principle that uh, that defendants in criminal cases, when they appeal, uh, when they lose their appeals, the court, the courts of appeal and Supreme Court will frequently say we are not allowed to read the statute for more than it says. Well, we used that principle this time, but the district attorneys opposed it, at least the ones that have been uh, opposing constitutionality. And they brought in this case law principle and that case law principle and another case law principle and uh, basically said that no, the appellate courts should be theorizing what the voters would have meant uh by these ballot propositions had the propositions included the language that wasn't there and 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 we have said no you can't do that if the language is not there you can't create the language that's not there um, i admit that from the very start um that i've been involved in this from the start um uh, right after the legislation was enacted in October of 2018, uh, Sylvia Perez McDonald, the executive director of the Santa Clara County Indigenous Defense Office, uh, for which I do some trial court work, uh, asked me to write um, a, a kind of uh, an article for uh, people in uh, trial attorneys in Santa Clara County um, to explain the law, and that was what I explained just read the law to mean what it says, read the ballot propositions to mean what they say, and there should be no question. Um, And unfortunately, I underestimated the ability of uh, district attorneys to come up with creative arguments on how to circumvent the plain language of what the law actually says and what the propositions actually said. But we simply adhere to the straight and narrow, and so far it's worked.
0: And I'll admit, being a little biased, but when I first read the Attorney General's brief, I was fairly convinced uh, that they were correct in their reading of the ballot propositions and that it would ultimately be found constitutional.
1: I I agree with not the slightest hint of bias on my part.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, But... It just seemed self-evident that uh that that the ballot uh, propositions did not preclude changing what the penalties were
1: that would be our view um the position of the district attorneys however was that in proposition seven in 1978 the voters changed the penalties for first-degree murder and second-degree murder, and that somehow the changing of the penalties uh, necessarily swept in uh, uh, the question of who can be convicted of first-degree murder. In, in essence, their view was that um, Uh, that when they changed the penalties for first-degree murder in uh, 1978 uh, that, if you will, froze the category of people who could be convicted of first-degree murder uh, and second-degree murder. Now, mind you, those changes of penalties um, were very much called for, if you will. The penalty for second-degree murder uh, back before 1978, was five, six, or seven years in prison, with the possibility of uh, getting out in half that time. And the penalty for first-degree murder was seven years to life, also with the possibility of getting out in half that time. Certainly, I think most people agree that the penalties for convictions of murder uh, should be stiffened. But the question of who can be convicted of murder uh, was never put on the ballot, and in particular. Um, the question of whether these people who were affected by SB 1437, the the people with derivative liability, who neither killed nor intended to kill nor had major participation but reckless indifference, the question of of whether they should be uh, liable for convictions of murder was never put on the ballot. Indeed, there's nothing to suggest that the electorate even knew that these categories of people who could be convicted of murder even existed. Uh, what would the electorate have said had the proponents of some proposition put before them the question of if a person gets involved in a misdemeanor fight, should they be uh, subject to conviction for murder? Um, I don't know what the electorate would have said. Maybe the electorate would have said, "No, that's ridiculous." But that was never on the ballot, and that's the point we've been making from day one. But the district attorneys disagreed with that and they pulled out principles from case law to try to make an opposite point. Um, we then pulled out principles from other cases that basically said that A, the Supreme Court and Court of Appeals, courts of appeal have rejected your line of reasoning in other contexts, and B, if you bring this to its extreme, then uh, the result ends up being ridiculous because it means that every time um, a criminal punishment changes, even by one day or one year, that automatically uh, uh, freezes in place the category of people um, who can be convicted of those crimes. And that could be any crime, even a parking ticket. And uh, and it just proves too much. It makes no sense.
0: So are you surprised that the Supreme Court did not decide to take this up?
1: I didn't have a prediction. Um, It could have gone one of two ways. And mind you, uh, we certainly opposed the uh, efforts of the Riverside County District Attorney Uh, and then the San Bernardino District Attorney as amicus curiae, friend of the court, uh, we opposed their efforts to seek review because my first and foremost task is that I'm representing my client, Patty Lamoureux. Um, And would I like to be in the California Supreme Court arguing this issue? Sure, I could do a very good job. But uh, I opposed it at every turn because uh, I wanted Patty freed. Um, I felt it could have gone one of two ways. Either they could have taken the issue in Patty's case and in the uh, corresponding Gooden case because they know this issue is out there and it's a big deal and they wanted to decide it quickly, or they could do what they usually do, which is wait to see if there is a conflict among published opinions in courts of appeal For example, another court of appeal could come down later and issue a published opinion and say, no, it's unconstitutional. And they would wait for that before taking the case. And if no court of appeal ever did that, then they would never have to take the case. And I didn't know which way they were going to go. I just uh, opposed review. And ultimately, the California Supreme Court uh, did deny review. Now, one interesting thing they did, along with that was that when the San Bernardino District Attorney filed his friend of the court brief supporting review, uh, he also requested what's called depublication. And that's kind of a unique California uh, practice whereby if a court of appeal issues an opinion and, quote, publishes it, which means that they officially put it into the, uh, the opinion books, which only happens with about 5% of opinions, that the Supreme Court then has the authority to do what's called depublishing the opinion, which is to take it out of the official opinion books. Um, And so the San Bernardino District Attorney asked for that. They asked for the opinion to be be published. Um, We oppose that as well and the Supreme Court denied depublication, which means that the lamar opinion now uh, can be cited by, uh, officially, by attorneys everywhere, and must be adhered to um, by all trial courts, at least for the time being, unless the time comes when there's a, com- a conflict in opinions. So the decision to de- uh, not to depublish the opinion is actually quite a big deal, and I don't know that it necessarily signifies which way the Supreme Court is leaning, uh, if it's leaning at all at this point, uh, but certainly uh, it has practical significance. And we applaud that because it's, uh, it's now something that officially can be used by courts everywhere.
0: And then I suppose the last question is going to be what the third district does with the Davidson case, um, because if they, they rule it unconstitutional, then it probably does end up in the Supreme Court.
1: That would be true. Um, I, I should add, first of all, that um, I've actually got a constitutionality case before the Third District Court of Appeal right now myself, and it's out of Yellow County, believe it or not. Oh, interesting. Quite coincidentally. Uh, so uh, that case is out there along with the Davidson case. And the Davidson case um, arises in a different posture and uh, and may involve different issues. And Jennifer Musas has done an ex- extremely good job, uh, really fine work with the Davidson case. And uh, so I'm Certainly hoping that the Third District Court of Appeal uh, follows her briefing, just as I'm hoping that uh, it follows my briefing in the uh, in the Yellow County case that I have. Um, but there are quite a number of cases in courts of appeal all over California that are now coming up, if you will. There have been constitutionality cases argued in. Um, Uh, Orange County just had two argued on February the 19th. Um, There is a constitutionality case scheduled for oral argument in the Court of Appeal in Ventura, I believe, this week. Um, There is a constitutionality case scheduled for argument in the Court of Appeal in Riverside next month. Um, I have a constitutionality case out of... um, uh, out of the court of appeal in Fresno that may come up for argument next month. So it's not just what's happening in the Third District Court of Appeal. There are 18 courts of appeal across California, and uh, there's a lot of these unconstitutionality rulings or constitutionality rulings out of the trial courts that are coming up uh, now in the courts of appeal. Uh, I've got about six of these cases in the courts of appeal. So. Um, and there's no way to predict what's going to happen. There's no way to know what a court of appeal is going to do before it does it. Um, the only thing uh, the only thing that we know is that there, there, um, uh, the court of appeal in Riverside is unique in California in that it will issue what are called tentative opinions, where it will say this is what we're intending to do unless somebody talks us out of it. And it's issued two of opinions in these types of cases, and both of them have supported constitutionality following the Lomero and gooden opinions. So that's certainly a plus. But I think all we can say at this time is that the courts of appeal will do whatever they do, and if any one of them finds um, SB 1437 unconstitutional, then almost certainly that case will go up to the California Supreme Court, And if none of them find SB 1437 unconstitutional, then the Supreme Court doesn't have to get involved and we'll see what happens.
0: Very good. Well, we are out of time. I wanted to thank you for coming on uh, and explaining this very interesting case and case law to us.
1: Well, you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure.
0: That was Michelle Peterson. You're listening to Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald, and join us again next time for more tales from the court system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett, for the use of our opening, Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.